0: Welcome to Expertise, where we talk to experts from the tech industry and try to tease out insights on what makes them great and what they do. Real people with real stories. I am your host Gurpreet. So join me today with a cup of chai and enjoy the conversation. mushtaq Ahmed is a principal consultant developer and engineering leader at ThoughtWorks Pune and he is currently working on the 30 meter telescope open source project. He is also affectionately known as the Scala Guru in ThoughtWorks. Mushtaq's ability to explain the nuances of various programming constructs, how to break down a problem, and elegantly solve it using various functional and non-functional paradigms is hands down amazing. In fact, attending his talks on Scala or pairing with him has always inspired me to continually search for secrets hidden in programming language design. In this podcast, we start by discussing Mushtaq's career journey to becoming a senior coding architect and then delve into building systems for literally astronomical scale. I hope you enjoy this as much as we enjoyed recording it. Hey, Mushtaq Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to get a chance to bring you here. I've been <laughs> wanting to get you on this show for quite some time. So finally, we've been able to manage it. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Gurpreet. Uh, I'm excited. I mean, I haven't done this kind of a thing. Uh, maybe only once. So I'm looking forward to it. Happy to be here.
0: Super. So even though I know you really well, we work together on some of the projects in ThoughtWorks. I think for our viewers, it would be good if we do a lightweight introduction. What I've done is I've prepared a series of questions and I thought, let's go through each of the question and uh, maybe you can sort of, you know, answer each one of them a bit quickly uh, based on whatever comes on the top of your mind first, and uh, that will help, you know, listeners get to know you a bit better. Does that sound good? So it's like a rapid fire round, but it's not really very rapid. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah. Sounds good.
0: Cool. So which city do you stay in?
1: I stay in Pune.
0: And what's your total experience and then what's your uh, experience tenure at ThoughtWorks? Uh,
1: So I am in the software industry for two decades and Mm -hmm. I am with ThoughtWorks for almost 13 years.
0: Oh, yeah. Great. And uh, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, or Hacker News. Uh, Twitter. Uh, that's like a strong answer. lock kar types. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Awesome. That is, I'm just, I'm just answering uh, from the real data, right? So I use other things a little bit, but Twitter is like fa- by far the most used app for me.
0: All right, great. <laughs> Can you describe yourself in three words?
1: Learner. And problem solver. Those are three words,
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm clearly speaking to a programmer. Great. <laughs> uh, and what's your choice of coding environment? Uh,
1: IntelliJ, uh, followed by
0: code. Uh, right, uh, VS, VS code. code. Okay, awesome. <laughs> and did, did this uh, choice like happen in ThoughtWorks?
1: Oh, yeah, it's... Uh, after joining thoughtworks before joining thoughtworks my story was different i was not coding as much and uh, these tools some of these tools did not even exist like vs code uh, <laughs> intellij was there but uh but not very popular uh, in the company where i was and eclipse was very popular so i knew yeah
0: that. that's cool. i remember i have spent a long time on eclipse actually before thoughtworks true and softwares uh, a software that you love the most or you couldn't live without
1: uh, there are many, uh, and IntelliJ again will top the list. So if you if you consider me a programmer, I mean I'm doing now a lot of non-programming stuff. But if you consider me as a programmer, then IntelliJ is like I I will pay even if I quit thought. Yeah. I will pay and retain that software. So that is one. And then there are a lot of other which which are always open. So like six seven of them like always open. Uh, I can mention some of them like Item is very very cool. I use a a, a software called. F- fork uh, which is a uh, for for managing my git repositories and commits and branches and stuff like that so i, yeah,
0: see. I see so you're so fork, fork helps you like use git more effectively kya? i haven't used i feel
1: before. so i feel so uh i but um uh, there's some people who prefer command line there's some people who prefer their ide like IntelliJ, right. and there there is me who prefer this third party tool dedicated just for before the gate, and I just love it. I mean, that pattern, I, I enjoyed it.
0: Great. So fork is another, and you said there are some others like item that are in your list. Yes. Okay. On in terms of food, what is one food that you would not want to give up? The, the,
1: the traditional mutton curry that we oh, we sorry. can't eat every day because then it's it <laughs> a little 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 boring and <laughs> a little taxing on your body. But yeah, I think every time that is the best. Yeah.
0: That sounds good. Sounds yummy. Um, do you have a weekend hobby? uh
1: no, no, not, not really. On the weekends, in different phases, I have been doing different things. When I was coding heavily, I used to just code over the weekend. I used to look forward to weekend so that I I get um then bothering my daughters uh, with their studies or otherwise. Uh, these days i'm into like i'm trying to see home improvement uh, I, I i want to basically change few things at home and then i spend time thinking about that so yeah different things and maybe if i don't exercise uh on the weekdays then weekends uh, are the other things i try to catch up
0: and your favorite holiday destination
1: uh i would say goa I, i've been there only like three times but yeah it's i like it it's not that far from pune uh, I like it, and then apart from that, visiting relatives uh, in my native places and spending like a day uh, at multiple places, and that's that's what I I enjoy.
0: And is there a city outside India that you visited that you really really liked, and you know would like to go back and visit it?
1: Many actually, every, every city <laughs> I visited, <laughs> I, I just I just like it. I mean, I. I I just sit back and say that okay, I, I'm I'm planning to move there. It's a thought experiment. I enjoy. I, I do it for. So I've been to, uh, say, Boston a few times. That is great. Been to New York. Uh, that is okay. Let's let's. Uh, that is out maybe. London is. I would say if if number one, then London. Right? It's amazing as a, as a visitor for two three weeks, staying there, in a in a hotel and and uh, commuting yeah, to work.
0: It's a, it's a really, yeah, definitely a pretty place for as a tourist for sure.
1: Yeah, Barcelona is also very good. By the way, I've been there once just for a week. Very good.
0: What about your favorite book? Do you have a favorite book?
1: Uh, one book that influenced me a lot when I was becoming a programmer and that, that remains my favorite. Maybe I moved, moved on since then, but Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham is 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 the one book i i remember most even though i disagree now with some of the premises in that book but i remember that most, so maybe you can say that is my favorite book
0: but for i haven't read the book and for the listeners who haven't read the book could you like give like a very short summary of what what the book is about
1: uh, so Paul Graham uh, has a very popular uh, blog where he puts his essays. He calls his essays or long articles about various things related to programming languages. When when early on he started, and he's a Lisp hacker, and uh, this book is a collection of those articles. Uh, so there is a common theme, uh, which is programming languages, Lisp, um, entrepreneurship. Uh, technology uh, but it's all a collection of his essays and and he's a very contrarian thinker so he will always bring out a point which is for example I I, I vividly remember uh, I think that was the title of one of the articles was uh, the things that you can think but cannot say Mm -hmm. and he has a he has a full article on that and I was I was amused and I so it's a it's a very good book if you and and many people in the tech especially in lisp community would know about paul graham and his articles and and uh, either you read this book or read all his blogs basically that he's written so
0: yeah actually i recently read an article <laughs> written by paul graham on his blog site it was called maker schedule manager schedule mm-hmm. and i found it really interesting where he was talking about how you know uh, for a maker someone who's creative like a programmer You know you want to break the day into halves so you know first half and second half and and when it comes to meetings and you know uh, short discussions people who are makers they prefer that they get they don't get any distraction during that half so rather than you know one hour one hour three one hour busy a maker prefers to work on the on the half day schedule so give them the whole half day and don't distract them during that half day period otherwise you know they cannot basically stay productive and i found the like really insightful in contrary to maybe a manager who's anyway task switching and is doing relatively more tactical activities rather than potentially creative activities
1: yeah yeah completely agree uh-huh i'm just now now thinking about it i may maybe my days are also like that and especially the first half is very precious for me i mean i wouldn't want to commit to anything just just to my team uh, and what we are doing within the team the tech discussions that's it
0: yeah actually that is something that i think we should dive a bit deeper into as we move ahead since uh, we'll be talking about team and and you know as a tech leader taking decisions i think maybe we'll try and touch this topic also uh, so, last two questions of our you know slow rapid fire round. <laughs> what is your biggest addiction?
1: It, it, it has been changing. So Scala and programming used to be that. So let's say that is my biggest addiction. I mean, uh, thinking about Scala and ecosystem and and the implications. Uh, the intensity has gone down a little now, but yeah, that is my biggest addiction. And and to be honest, I think I'm a person with the with the with the addiction, right? Uh, so. There has been a time for with coffee and now tea and uh, and some obsessive thoughts here and there and but yeah scala remains to be the the most most persistent of all all of them yeah
0: yeah i mean that that aspect of your love for scala is, is quite clear i mean it's visible within thoughtworks uh, you know i've worked with you on a scala project and uh, and i think your passion for scala and in general, programming languages—you know—that is undeniably pretty amazing and uh, inspiring, actually, in a way. So maybe we'll see—we'll deep dive a bit into your into your career journey uh, soon. Last question: What's your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime or streaming show?
1: Uh, so I I realize that I like detective shows and <laughs> Sherlock Holmes uh, on Netflix. That series, I think. That is the best because maybe that is the first good detective series I saw. Yeah, that is my favorite. And then a couple others that you suggested: Bosch, Elementary.
0: Awesome, cool. So that's the end of the rapid fire round. I think uh, you did really well, <laughs> uh, full marks. Uh, and maybe now it's a good time to shift to a topic that I think uh, is also really interesting. You had a you've had a pretty you know unorthodox. Uh, career journey to becoming a programmer. And uh, I was I was hoping maybe you could share, you know, like you are known in office as Dr. Mushtaq. And the term doctor here doesn't mean PhD doctor, but it actually means medical doctor. So that's true, right?
1: <laughs> right, that's, that's true. Uh, there was a time when I joined the software industry, I used to be very proud of that. I used to, in my email signature, Everywhere in my card, actually, uh, office card, I used to print doctor. Then I stopped because it used to trigger long discussions and distract uh, from any meeting. It used to be a distraction. So I stopped doing that. So I don't introduce myself as doctors, as a doctor now. But uh, to answer your question, yes, my journey is uh, a little unorthodox. I became a doctor for various reasons. I think for a middle-class family, uh, sense of security and then what parents convince you to do and uh, those things play a role and I, that that was the reason I, I became a doctor. But then I also uh, quickly realized that I don't, uh, I don't, I, I knew, I knew that I like physics and maths better than biology. Uh, but I didn't know that, uh, I somehow hoped that after joining medical college, things will become very interesting and it won't be, it won't be just like a, high school biology but uh, somehow i couldn't uh, enjoy but there were few subjects i enjoyed but 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 i always felt that maybe i'm meant to do something else maybe something more in tech technology engineering i don't know what it will be but i wanted to explore and that is the reason i took a turn i mean i did various things i can i can talk about them if you want
0: yes yes it would be good to hear like the so where did you do your mbbs from
1: uh, I went to I went to BJ Medical College, Pune. Oh, so okay, I'm, BJ uh, Medical. Uh, yes, yes. So I'm in Pune for so I my journey is like my native place, Shahada, which is like I fondly remember every day where I was born, brought up. I did my full schooling there, and then I came to Pune for MBBS. Right. And because of this situation, I I was exploring options which will allow me to exit. I mean, the one very courageous option would happen to just drop it, uh, maybe after a year or two, and then just do something else but i think many people will will understand it's not easy option because then then uh, there is so much pressure that oh you got into medical you got into good college you'll get a degree at least get a degree and then do something else so mm-hmm. i started exploring those options what can i do with this degree i mean and then i found something called biomedical engineering and iit bombay unfortunately, uh, they allowed, they they advertised that, okay, even if you're an MBBS doctor or engineer or MSc in science, all of you can come together for this interdisciplinary course and get a master's degree, take from IIT Bombay. And I was like, wow, this is like exit. This is my graceful exit from, from uh, this mess. And I joined that program. Um, and then it was two years and I didn't know what I will do clearly after that, but I thought maybe it will open opportunities to go to US, do PhD, and maybe I will find something really interesting. But what happened is that I learned programming uh, just before joining and during, of course, uh, during my course, I, I, I learned programming and it fascinated me. I was taught C and C++ and I, I, was, taught, I was told that these are the things which are used a lot for doing your engineering work. And what on my own, I discovered that Python is a new language, relatively new at the time, 99 Right, right. And that is like much easier for doing my task, which I was planning to do. And uh, that really, that that mystified me. I mean, I wanted to learn programming. I knew that I'm not a programmer. I'm far behind. C, C++ sounds cool, but it's taking a lot of time to do the task. And this Python thing is there, which is so beautiful, nice, easy. Uh, but no one seems to be using it. And somehow that kind of a gap, right? uh, In people's perception and what is available uh, and a fun, a fun thing to you made me, I mean, that was, that was the point which, which made me think about programming a lot because I almost felt that, okay, there is a, there is a lot easier and better options. And somehow uh, people don't adopt it just like that. Right. I mean, so then I started evangelizing Python in my hostel to computer science people in, uh, his name was Sharik Rizvi. He was a, he was in computer science. And I started talking to him about Python and they used to use Scheme, I guess, in IIT Bombay for their, their undergrad course. He was a BTEC student in computer science. Right, right. he said, yeah, I, I never heard of Python. And then I found out that Google uses Python. So I told him that, you know what, Google uses Python. Later on, he joined Google, by the way, and I met him in US and he remembered <laughs> that. Uh, so so that that was my hook that was my like i got hooked to programming because of this that gap that something which fascinates me it's niche but i know there's a huge potential it can be used to simplify things uh now if you talk about python i mean now i don't do python much to be honest right I, i moved on but now if you think about python i mean yes it is it is really easy and it is really adopted but that time it was not and and that was my journey to software. So so when I finished my my course, I had a opportunity to either pursue PhD outside or uh, uh, get a software job. Uh, so I got a software job in Pune where I was not hired as a programmer, uh, but I was hired as a person who understands technology enough, but is from life sciences domain and can help uh, work as a domain expert. In bioinformatics, and right. that is the job I I did in right. for seven years.
0: So yeah, persistent systems, right? That was your yes. first company.
1: That was my first company.
0: Can you talk a little bit, uh, just like a brief on uh, when you say life sciences, what what kind of work did it entail?
1: So when when I was getting hired, I didn't have a clue. I, I knew what is biomedical engineering, which is which is very broad. Uh, the way we were taught, it is like any engineering discipline applied to solve life uh, medical sciences problem. Right? It's as general as that. Which means you use computers or you use mechanical engineering to make processes, or you make detection of X rays patterns and all that. So that is biomedical engineering for me. But when I got hired. I didn't know what is this bioinformatics in life sciences, but then I learned on the job. Uh, so persistent used to work a lot with uh, with uh, some industry, which is which which used to make instruments, and then later software in the life sciences domain. To just give an example, Agilent Technologies was was the the biggest basically client for persistent, and uh, they used to make uh, mass spectrometry. Uh, instruments and precision has been working with them for a long time in fact they had a domain expert uh, in in uh, already which was uh, related to mass spectrometry but they wanted to do more uh, in that space and they thought that my background will help so what we ended up doing later on was working with many universities in um, in us which were trying to build uh, some tooling uh, around bioinformatics and what is bioinformatics there used to be a even now, uh, in, in, uh, if you, people know about uh, genome sequencing, right? Uh, right, right these days. Right. But that used to be a new thing back then. Uh, uh, gene expression studies using microarrays used to be a new thing. Uh, then a lot of instruments which used to generate huge amount of data, which was not possible. I mean, uh, to give an example, <clears throat> you can compare with this uh, radio astronomy, uh, right? Right. Uh, it's, again, right. not a very common domain, but but this is one field which is crazy because uh, unlike your optical astronomy, where you have big lenses, big mirrors, and and capture some images and analyze that, radio astronomy is weird. I mean, it can capture data 24 by 7 at a speed that it's impossible for you to harvest all the data. And then uh, what you do is reject some, which is not important, right on the f- At the time of capture, keep some, and that itself is huge. And then you make sense out of that, and maybe project some images and all that. That's how when you, if you've seen an image of a black hole, right? I mean, you can't, you can't have optical image of a black hole. What you have is like a like a radio Radio astronomy which is capturing right radio image, and then you project it into into the optical domain and create a photograph that you can look at. Right. Uh, Something similar happened uh, and is happening in the life sciences. That there are instruments which generate huge amount of data. I mean, you almost have to make a decision what to keep and what to reject uh, every time, every year. Even even that happened like twenty years ago. That is happening even now. Our storage technology is improving, but the machines which are throwing out data at you is also uh, throwing out more data. So so that was the challenge. That how do you manage that data? How do you and simple tooling uh, which are which involve databases and data management and maybe uh, ETL and data cleansing and uh, access to that data through web interface. And rarely uh, maybe uh, integrating some some cool uh, libraries uh, which are which are algorithmic basically into those tools uh, or some cool visualizations that uh, you would want to get together uh, at at one place so that was the domain of bioinformatics where uh, and that i all learned on the job i mean i didn't know that before starting
0: so you you played a business analyst role there right uh, for almost 7 That's years true. and no, no 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 programming on the job right
1: no programming on the job well i used to do some uh, so in that uh, 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 domain the 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 the, the the most used platform was R. R programming language. Yes, yes. The R. And yeah. uh, uh, many people don't know that R was created by uh, biostatisticians. So biology was the main department of biology, I guess, uh, and biostatistics from Berkeley, where uh, the where where the roots of R programming are. It was created for doing population studies and and. Uh, uh, that kind of research. So it was it was adopted in the biology community very early on, including bioinformatics community. So I did code in R that time. Um, then uh, I was not happy because Python, uh, my love, right? I mean, I used to I used to feel that okay, all these things if these libraries were available in Python, they will be so cool. So I used to bring in Python here and there, sometimes for visualization, sometimes for connecting with R sometimes with just doing some simple data processing. So I had done some hands-on Python and R, but uh, no Java, no enterprise software. Um, And towards the end, I learned about Ruby because I was in Python. I learned about Ruby and I tried to... I did not use it myself, Ruby on Rails, but I I made a project I was working on in bioinformatics. I made the... (laughs) I convinced the team to use Ruby on Rails for for a simple application at that time, so... Yeah, very that was interesting. My experience.
0: <laughs> usually you would go to architects and say, hey, you know, what should we use? And you are, you kind of like a business analyst in a way, you know, officially yeah. uh, convince yeah. your team, give a <laughs> shot. <war-war. laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I think I, then, like yeah, I, I like to do such things. Yeah. I like to no, do such things. Yeah. So that's,
0: that's really, really, very interesting. And then uh, you, you joined ThoughtWorks, right? I think it was when 2008, maybe? Yes. Yes, and uh, as a BA again. Um, yes, because I, I, I did
1: not have enough qualifications uh, that right. I could. I, I did not have confidence that I will crack their test for programming, um, uh, uh, and and uh, yeah, I thought that maybe I will join as a BA, and then this company may allow me to do to do a lot of programming. How I didn't know again, like always, but I had I took that leap of faith and uh, and I joined.
0: Yeah, and it seems it came true. Actually, <laughs> we it know it you did, as a programmer and uh, not as a <laughs> as a BA from life sciences uh, background.
1: Yes, it did. It did it
0: so. Like, so how how did this happen? Like the switch. Like did you like just approach ThoughtWorks to someone and say, hey, "Listen, you know what? The next project you staff me. I want to be a developer." Or like, or did you just like silently in a project only make the change? Uh, like like what did you do to make this? You know. Uh, Transition.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, so w- various things, right? I mean, uh, various things. I It, it is like I spoke on it earlier also. It's like a wishful thinking, right? These are the like bouts of wishful thinking that you be a programmer. I mean, I, I used to visualize myself doing the programming. And by then I had learned Scala. When just before I left Persistent, I started uh, learning Scala because I wanted to teach myself some serious programming uh, outside outside Python. And I just visualized myself that one day this language i'm mastered and i'm coding in it and and i used to like that vision and i didn't know what to do about it so i used to do like random things i mean i used to talk about scala to my fellow teammates because in thoughtworks people talk about technology a lot i used to once in a while i used to pair with someone and and give a give a session technology session basically uh and and now now i understand that my understanding of programming was very limited Uh, And uh, some of the ideas I had misunderstood that time, but I still used to talk about them. Dependency injection, for example, I I somehow thought that Scala has some advantage in doing dependency injection. Uh, I did not fully understand how how Java programmers use it. I almost thought that dependency injection is something like Spring or Juice and it's a magic, Uh, but the principles were, were very simple. Now I understand them, but that time I did not. And I thought that maybe Scala has a something to provide so i was pitching i was pitching i used to program uh, Amon king i pro- uh, paired with him and, and and we made a presentation to the office people must have laughed but they must they, they appreciated me a lot that okay i'm making that that effort then uh, of course i used to take sessions uh, in the evenings right all all the events in thoughtworks where we we talk about technology so i used to take sessions on scala and functional programming and all that so that is how i started doing things And then I used to take bets and chances and push things like I pushed in like Ruby on Rails on one project. So wherever I get opportunity, I will try to convince people around me to to, to look at Scala and the ecosystem. And that made me talk to senior people uh, in in Pune office. And then somehow, because I was talking so much and I I was traveling to London office for my BA work, i got in touch with uh, with someone in london office basically and uh, uh, they were starting a scala project uh, and they, they 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 heard about me i created enough noise let's say that and they said that okay will you, <laughs> will you be interested in helping us uh, just 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 discussions and i said okay i can do that and then in a few months time the project i was doing came to an end and I was I was available to be assigned to a new project and I said I somehow again wishful thinking I, I I contacted that person in London office saying that okay you you're starting now can I join you as a developer that too in London can I travel there and I had I had family I have my elder daughter was born already but I said I will travel there so, and then uh, that materialized so I I went to London for three four months I worked with them. That was my first dev assignment, full-time dev assignment. And I I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed. The the people helped me a lot. I used to really think that, okay, I know a lot about Scala and that's why I can help them. So I used to try. I used to make a lot of effort. uh, But now I understand that, yeah, I was like big novice. I did not know many things about programming. Uh, Well, I knew Scala construct, but I did not know about programming principles that well. But no one made me ever feel that, right? I mean, they you always used to say good things about me, and there are many people in ThoughtWorks like that, or or in in tech community I have come across, and I think that helped because that gives you that confidence and boost, and and you keep floating for a while till you find your like grip, right? And then uh, that changes things. So so yeah, it was it was. I mean, uh, yeah, it was like a mix. I kept talking about it. I wanted to do it. And somehow it happened. I I took bets. I, I asked and it happened. So let's say that.
0: Yeah, this is very, very interesting, actually. And I feel like, you know, like they say, luck favors the brave. I feel like, you know, in your case, you know, luck has favored you mostly because you seem to have prepared a lot for it <laughs> you've been doing you've been doing enough so that when the opportunity potentially arises you can actually you know take it and that seems to have helped so it, it, i'm actually curious now because you know you didn't take like a traditional you didn't like study computer science in college and then become a programmer otherwise in college you know we study data structures algorithms data databases and some you know exposure to you know programming and you know assignments like you know create an editor or write a library management system like that's you know it's quite common for students to get exposed to programming like that. I was curious uh, if someone is new in their career, they've just you know joined as a developer, maybe done a year and a half or two or more. Um, what what would be your advice? to really learning programming, right? To really become good at it so that uh, you don't like go through, you know, coding just like a above average programmer, but go through it in a way that it also gives you joy and helps you, you know, build uh, maybe software that others also, you know, look at and appreciate. And the reason I ask you this question is because I have seen, you know, the way you code, the way you think about programming, and the way you take you know sessions in thoughtworks and otherwise and it is actually uh pretty you know mind blowing actually
1: uh okay so it's a I'll, I'll give a long answer right because there is no no just one way here and right. uh, so this is called as being an autodidact right when you teach something yourself and uh, uh, this used to happen in programming the we we see many people uh, which uh, which are not trained in computer science, uh, but in Indian IT industry, there are many people who came from outside, maybe engineering or sometimes not even engineering disciplines and, and learned programming. Maybe they had to attend small courses and all that. But, uh, but teaching yourself programming is one of the easiest thing in this auto diet. In, <laughs> you can teach yourself to write and to play music and, and to play games and all that but i think programming is the most common thing which is which is i'm seeing around me now uh, that people teach themselves i know uh, son of my uh, very close friend he's in 12th now he's very good python programmer already and not just he knows python but he's actually creating some small tools and bots and he's using uh, some libraries which are completely event-driven, which are which is a big deal basically. Uh, of at that age, he's also being paid a little bit, a token money for creating some tools for someone online, and uh, who taught him? He he taught himself. Well, he his father was a programmer long ago. Well, that was the history maybe, and uh, but but he taught himself and how well YouTube and liking for programming. And uh, that is just one example uh, in programming. Now I can give my, my my younger daughter. She is like twelve. She will turn twelve. She's she's taught herself art basically, like on iPad, how to draw in Procreate. And uh, she's an autodidact. She I I have no clue. In our family, we are not into art, but she taught herself. She does it very well. Uh, and uh, how YouTube? She follows people. She follows people who are who have a huge following and they they create great art and she learns on her own so i think in the modern world learning something on on our own is going to be very common if not default uh maybe maybe i i did that uh, uh, at a time when it was not very common and and everybody was more sensitive uh, and concerned about their career paths and and fear right what will happen will i get my job will i lose my job and all that but i think that fear has gone down drastically now people are like in fact if you if you ask me uh, once that uh, son of my friend turns 18 as an adult and he 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 can legally apply for a job i i will have to hire him right i mean if he's good I will have to hire him. I mean, what will I look for? He has everything. He has like, so young, being young, he has fire and and drive and all that. So, so, uh, so the things have changed. So, my advice to young youngsters is that I mean, don't hold back just because you don't have a degree. Maybe just because you don't have a credentials, official credentials. I mean, that is not. The, in fact, I would say that official credentials are required for something completely different these days. They they are required for you to get qualified to apply for certain visa in US, for example. If you don't have a bachelor's degree, then maybe uh, visa processing will be difficult, right? That is a logistic issue that you can solve by by getting an official degree in some discipline. But uh, I think that learning programming these days, I mean, I know, I mean, uh, w- w- I should have given another example. One of our team members, my current project, he joined us as a QA. He is now le- leading the team, uh, a scala Aka concurrent distributed telescope control system. He, he, he's the effectively leading the team as a programmer uh, within a span of four years, but not all four years. Initial one and a half years, he was like still doing a QA, of course, a lot of coding, but then we soon realized that he's just too good, and he knew that. And he, and that's it. That happens. I mean, we just we, we changed his title in our system uh, from from being a QA to a dev, uh, and then that change happened. Uh, 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 he was a senior QA, and he became a senior dev. And then he got a promotion too because we had to do his grade change because he was operating at a different level. So he's a lead on developer at Artworks. And like when he joined my project, he was a QA. He was a he was basically a a senior con so 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 in this modern world i don't think that is that is a constraint anymore uh, people just have to realize that this is the norm now and forget about so there used to be a lot of fear uh, earlier but but i think that is going down the job market is is decent in technology at least so i would that is my advice i think there are umpteen examples around us that we don't have to now hold back and 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 expect that oh i don't have a degree and i don't have exposure to that course you can teach yourself whatever you want
0: i'm curious uh, mm-hmm. let's say i'm a, i'm i'm in a i'm stuck in a place where i'm only doing potentially doing support but not getting to do you know hands on coding for long periods of time right like the i mostly like maybe do bug fixes on existing legacy systems i was curious uh, what advice would you give to them if they wanted to uh, you know get better maybe one advice could be just switch your jobs <laughs> but uh, I was, do you think like you know are there books are there people they should follow should they just like you know start writing code somewhere like how does someone become you know like accelerate their growth to be to becoming good at programming yeah
1: yeah it's a it's a Good question related to the previous one. Uh, and I'm thinking, what will be my advice? So uh, let's say that I have been in similar situation when I was a B.A. in ThoughtWorks, right? I mean, I was not doing coding, but I wanted to. Uh, and I'm just thinking, what was I doing that time? So I used to look forward to end of day, right? Because throughout the day, I used to be a B.A. And, and, uh, and calls and uh, and talking and writing stories and all that. And then I used to look forward to the end of the day. I was also young, so I could could spend a lot more time with computers that time. Uh, And then I used to start reading. I was fond of programming, Scala to be specific that time. And I used to read everything around Scala, right? Whatever happens in the mailing lists, whatever happens on the GitHub repositories. And then Twitter came around, followed all the people in the community and then what they are saying about technology and then try out something on my own, Uh, 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 uh check out the code, uh, uh basically look at the code myself, have some opinion, try to build something very simple on my own. Those, those are the things I was doing. And I think that will be my advice to all the youngsters. Of course, this doing these things become more... For example, at this time now, if I am doing my day job and also doing... Some learning, something completely new in the evening. It will be a little taxing at this age, uh, but but it was not. I mean, I did not even think twice. I mean, I just did that. I I used to spend whatever waking hour I had basically outside my job, thinking about these things, reading, and and um, following people. So so yes, books are an option. I read uh, I read a Scala book that time. I'm realizing that YouTube and this medium is a very powerful medium. You cannot underestimate it. You cannot just because something is a book and something is like video created by a youngster, uh, that doesn't make a difference anymore. Maybe that video created by the youngster, how to create a TikTok clone using React, maybe is extremely powerful and more valuable than any book that you can read about programming. Because maybe you are fascinated by user interfaces. You want to build something that you can see. And, and create apps and you're fascinated. Traditionally, people felt that having a degree, course, training, mentor, uh, reading a standard book, I think that's a prerequisite before you can be confident and call yourself a programmer or or for that matter, any skilled title. But I, I come to believe that now that is not the case. Uh, and I was giving examples of YouTube is one medium, but I was giving other examples that... It's not only watching a training video or doing a training course. Uh, well, of course, that you can do now. That is that is very good. But various things are now happening. Uh, and I haven't tried that. But this person, this QA turned developer, he tries uh, those things. And he tells me that there are people who keep coding throughout the day uh, for their own projects. They keep doing the screencast throughout the day. And you can just sit and watch them. Uh, And uh, again, these are all things which are very, very... I I may not be able to do that, but you might have heard of people, they they watch uh, on the internet, other people play games, right? Uh, Right, right.
0: Like streaming platforms.
1: Streaming platforms. You can just... And I was like uh, uh, intrigued when I heard that, why would anyone do that? But people say that, yes, I mean, it's a a pleasure to watch good player play a game, basically, right? I mean, that itself is like...
0: it's like watching cricket.
1: Exactly, it's like a watching cricket, and and something similar is uh is also happening in some places about programming. That some people are saying that okay, this is like yeah, this is my screen which is which is being streamed all the time on some Twitch TV or some somewhere, and then you can come and watch me, and I will maybe I will keep doing my things, and you learn. I mean, you see what I'm doing, and maybe you will learn. It's like watching an expert, like watching an artist build something by hand. Uh, or, or an engineer build something basically a machine uh, in in the lab and that is great and uh, i don't have patience at this age to do that but this person he definitely consumes a lot of that and he he i can see the result he's really good he he's really good i i, I have no measure to evaluate him on a theoretical basis and in fact no need to do that but he delivers he he we have used, all these technologies that I was mentioning, apart from Scala, which is Kotlin and TypeScript and React and a lot of uh, uh, tooling around the user user uh, UI technologies. And uh, he's our main, uh, uh, basically, anchor uh, for troubleshooting. And he does that. And how did he train? Uh, so he not only became a Scala programmer and functional programmer, but he taught himself many other things in the last few years. And how did he do that? Well. Books are one. Yes, of course, he reads. He reads books also, but but basically, he's also exposed to all these modern ways of learning, which can you can quickly teach yourself uh, 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 on these things. So, my advice yeah. and uh, is that yeah, I think various options are possible. Don't don't restrict yourself with the old thinking. Don't feel bad if you can't read a book. Don't feel bad if you don't have a degree. Just, I mean, you, if you think that you are a good programmer or you you're a skilled uh, uh, technologist, you are. Just just follow your path, and and you will be doing what you want to do. Yeah,
0: actually, before I had joined ThoughtWorks, right in like 2011, I wasn't actively ever pairing. But uh, the pairing also in ThoughtWorks, working with someone, programming alongside with them, in a way seems to be the giving the same benefits. Like you were saying, actually, more then the streaming example right like you get to see a person programming you see the way they use the you know the ide the way they use terminal the way they think and then you are asking them questions also like why did you do this why did you like type this command instead of doing it like that like maybe if i was pairing with you today you might have like started fork the tool you mentioned earlier and i would be like okay what is this <laughs> yeah. and, and you know get to look at it evaluate ask questions and then take a decision maybe i'll use folk the next time or maybe i'll not use it but at least that learning is in a way happening through action right it's yes. like you know are you're, you're seeing someone do something rather than say something
1: yes yes exactly i think the thoughtworks is like is famous for that pair, pair programming in itself uh, even, even if you pair with a junior person, right, it's is very rewarding, right? Absolutely, I mean, you, you build together because it's like just two humans, discuss, two minds discussing. But now imagine that in a, if you are a luxury to work with someone uh, who is really skilled and experienced in that, that uh, tech, right, that you're coding in. So amazing UI developer or React developer, and you want to learn React, and you're pairing with that person. And uh, and your pairing is going well for a few days. Wow, that is the I think that is an experience which is which is not which is not the default, right? Because how many times will you get? Will everyone get this opportunity? Uh, right? I mean, maybe you will get to pair a lot, but you may not be able to pair with great people all the time. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, those are the things which are like amazing about ThoughtWorks and this pairing culture, and that is the same flavor of learning, I would say.
0: Right. Awesome. Now you're like on a different, uh, you know, large scale radio astronomy project and you are not just like a individual programmer, but you're like a team lead or like an architect or like a senior tech person on the on the on the account or on the project. Can you talk a little bit about this transition and also just to help you know the listeners understand, maybe give some context of the type of project you are on and the type of responsibilities now that you have to play and how does this transition from maybe an individual developer, contributor to a technology leader in a group, how does this transition happen for you and how are you feeling in this, in this world?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It is not a radio astronomy uh, telescope. It is an optical telescope that we are working with. And the name is 30-meter telescope. TMT is for short. Uh, It is a multi-country initiative. India is one of them. US, Canada, China, Japan and India. These are five countries. They're building one mega project, science project. Uh, And these mega projects take time. They take decades basically before they see the light. Is this like Uh, the Hubble
0: telescope or is it different?
1: Uh, Hubble is in space. Uh, Sky is another popular radio telescope, which is is being uh, developed, but that is a radio uh, telescope. And uh, this is optical. So um, this is going to be the largest optical telescope when it is functional, because the diameter of the primary mirror is going to be 30 meters. And uh, that makes it interesting. Uh, The domain is also very interesting. Uh, 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 What we are building, uh, me and my team, is basically, let's say, platform. Uh, for the control system uh, and uh, by control system uh, when people imagine telescope they imagine images and data and all that right but that is just one part in uh, that is just just that is that what in this domain it is called as science data so science data is one part it's a very important part because scientists care about that but there is a lot of other software uh, which is required uh, if you think of data then uh, larger than science data, there is telemetry data because it's a huge telescope like a factory floor and all the machines are moving and emitting their values and their positions and all that. And for for the debugging and troubleshooting and and learning purposes, all that information, all that telemetry of this this factory floor or this telescope has to be captured. And that data is huge. In fact, that is like it will be in terabytes every year right so so that that uh, that data is huge um, and uh, that is another part and then third part which uh, we are doing is the control system where how do you make all these uh, different uh, uh, hardware components coordinate with each other and how do you ensure that when you give uh, a logical command for doing some acquisition in the sky how that command can translate into multiple sub commands go to different subsystems come back and then perform the meaningful operation so that is the that is the system which is called as control system and we are building a software platform for that control system and that is what we have been doing for past 4 years now it is it is interesting and now you asked for about my role so yes well we we started this project because it was in scala and that was a primary requirement from skills point of view. And that's why ThoughtWorks got the project in the first place. So that was my involvement. And when, when we started, we were small, like four or five people. Later on, we became 10 people. So when we started, uh, I was coding heavily because uh, you rarely get to hire someone who will know Scala, right? And Scala programmer, uh, you, you rarely get to hire or or get staffed. So what you get is a good Java programmer or a good Node programmer and stuff like that. And they have to pick up Scala. So, so many of these people were new to the ecosystem. So I was coding very heavily and uh, and I was enjoying that. But then as, as we progressed, as we became a, a larger and larger code base, naturally some people started uh, taking the ownership and then they started knowing much more about the whole Layout of the code base and uh, the functionality and why certain decisions are made. All that knowledge about maintaining a code base. And then I learned that maybe relying on them for doing the main job is is natural. And that is how the teams work. That is how the maybe team leaders get their, their work done. It's not that you show them how to do everything. But once you establish the basic structure, basic standards and uh, uh, have channels for talking about about what they're doing what they're coding and, and look at the commits then maybe you can take a step back. Uh, what is also important is that you should be satisfied. <laughs> i was when i started my coding career i did not want to think about anything but coding and i, I that is how most of the programmers feel right they want to enjoy uh, the individual contributor role where they, they're coding building making something. Uh, and I would say that people should give enough time to themselves to be in that role. And then there comes a time, especially in a natural progression like this, that you set up something. Now, team is so big that you can't be doing everything, and then you have to learn basically how to how to get things done uh, uh, as effectively by delegating to others. And in fact, in fact, it's a I, I'm enjoying that. So these days I don't code a lot on my project. Uh, my teammates do; they're pretty good. Uh, we we talk about their issues and what approaches they are taking uh, every day. We have a long tech huddles basically every day. I enjoy, uh, and I because of the tech familiarity, I'm able to provide very significant inputs there. So I'm happy about that. Had had this been a project in completely different technology which I did not know for example then I would find myself maybe maybe not as effective but because this is in Scala and related ecosystem I still maintain without having to code myself I can give you the guidance and then another thing I learned is that my learning approach used to be okay let me try this out uh and then it changed to okay. Let me read the documentation, which was a great leap, by the way. And uh, and I would I would that is my advice if people are listening to this, that if you if you want to graduate uh, right uh, to the next level of learning, it can't be doing it yourself for everything. Sometimes reading documentation or manuals is very important skill. Uh, uh, for example, if there is a there is a library for doing a serialization, deserialization uh, in, in your programming language, and it's very intricate and it has many features, well, you can try it out, a few things, how it works, get a flavor. But then to know that what all things are possible and what all things can be used in your project, I, I would spend time reading about it, reading everything that, that has been documented, keeping a tab on all the issues in the GitHub, uh, and keeping tabs on all the pull requests and what things are changing. And that gives me an idea that, okay, how the library is evolving, what features are being added, what is the purpose that creator is adding this feature in the first place? Can it be utilized somewhere? So that is the first level of, uh, 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 I think, jump I did in my learning. And second level is learning by by letting other people do things. Now, uh, For example, I was... Uh, in the phase of our project, we wanted to uh, deal in the big data space where uh, we wanted to plan how to manage huge amount of telemetry data. Uh, and we we ended up deciding on uh, Delta Lake as our architecture choice for various reasons. Now, in my earlier life, I would have tried to do it myself before I exposed the whole team to what I'm thinking. But this time, I did. I, I read two very critical papers that came out. Uh, one was about their architecture name; they call it uh, Lake House Architecture. And then one was Delta Lake, which is one of the implementations. So I read that paper very carefully. What they're trying to say, and uh, I understood the gist. I, I thought so. And then I let my team members drive the investigations, right from installing it to to setting up the data. To inferring the schema, to writing some queries, to optimize it, to measure times—I mean, I did not do a single step of that. But at no point I felt uh, that okay, maybe, maybe they're not, maybe, maybe I'm. Uh, this is, this is, uh, uh, what should I say? Uh, I, I always felt in control. I always felt that I'm I'm learning. They're doing the right thing. If they make a mistake, I, I knew that I will come to know in a day or two, right? And uh, I will be able to provide them the right input where to look for. And I found that very rewarding because it suddenly scaled my learning to a new level. Now, it's not only me reading the manuals, but but yes, some of that, and then getting other hands, my team members to do the stuff, hearing from them, humans, which have already processed and and did their experiments feeding with that information and that was like that is new that is not very unique by the way i am assuming that all tech leadership has to go through this and uh, they they find their way of learning via others but but for me this this transition happened last one or two years and and i am enjoying that uh, i i feel also very comfortable right now because i used to get when 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 i used to program throughout i used to be very uh like get agitated with distractions and having to do some decision making on other things which i'm not involved right now and i used to avoid meetings i used to avoid uh basically doing a lot of relationship management and all that because that was all distraction but in my new role uh, I think my new role makes me more comfortable doing the allied things around the project because, because that is also important. That gives me the context. That gives me uh, this sense that, okay, what is more important to do right now? What is never going to happen? What are the fears of our customer? What what Where these anxieties are coming from? Uh, or maybe, maybe this is a different domain. Telescope is a different domain. Uh, maybe playing the role of an interpreter. That when they speak a lingo which we find like meaningless or sometimes basically wrong, uh, why is that? Maybe what is their intention? What are they trying to say? How can I translate that into our modern terminologies and and choices? So that is the role I am playing, and I am enjoying that. So so this is a different phase where I never thought uh, maybe four years ago that I will I will enjoy not coding but but just just doing all this uh, uh, things uh, around that. Uh, and, uh, that is, that is my journey. Good. does that, does that answer what, what you're looking for?
0: Yeah, actually it's quite helpful. <clears throat> I was just trying to, you know, like list on some of the things you mentioned, uh, as like a summary, but it sounds like one of the things you mentioned is, you know, um, one way of, of, uh, investigating whether some library or some strategy is going to be, you know, the right strategy for our needs is to sit down yourself, you know, and prototype it, like write the code yourself, mm-hmm. play with it. And it has its joy, right? It has the joy of, of potentially, you know, giving you this hacker feeling of actually building something, trying something out. And that that is rewarding. But uh, I feel like as you grow in career, you are also sometimes want, getting impatient, right? Like you want to make bigger things happen, and when you're yeah. getting this impatience of let's like you know let's make this happen, at that point in time, a strategy where you're digging everything can become a bottleneck, right? Because you're yeah. like yeah. stopping yourself from moving fast because you're not being able to divide and conquer. And it sounds like you're sort of saying let's let's divide the problem the big problem into smaller chunks and let's distribute it to team members who are themselves you know interested in 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 trying these things out they are capable in doing these things out and they can do that learning and come back and and say what and then you can now operate at the next level where you're taking these inputs and 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 making the decision on where to move forward and that itself is a accelerated way of learning because now you're learning about seven things Parallelly from different people and working together towards decision-making.
1: Yes. Yes. I think your summary is, is pretty apt. It's like, it's, it's, it is learning, uh, but it's a, it's a learning at a scale, I would say. Right. Um, And that impatience that you're talking about is natural because if you're in a leadership position, your job is to do the ensure that the delivery is successful overall and you can't find yourself stuck in just one stream and then, things go wrong in the in the other other places so yeah i think what what you summarized is perfectly on the on the point
0: and then and i think the other thing you said is that this has one more advantage i feel like it frees you up for certain other strategic work right like for instance talking to the client maybe understanding the domain a bit better maybe trying to figure out where are we headed in the long term what could be potential challenges that could come our way you know, like, do we need to start thinking of, let's say, a platform style strategy? So you you get a chance and some bandwidth, I guess, thinking time to start, start like, looking ahead and reading about those things and talking about those things. And then you, like, come back and say, okay, oh, well, looks like the team is ready. They have some information. Let's take the decisions on the ground. And then again, potentially switch back into that mode. So it allows you to Also, do other things that in a way you are likely best fit to do because of the the amount of experience you gained over time and the things that you can now start, uh, you know, interacting with, which you could potentially not delegate to the team members right now.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Right. Very interesting. So, so I think, um, uh, so you've been now working, you know, you're now working on TMT and it's it's like this 30 meter telescope, most likely it will have a huge amount of data and it might even be much, much larger than the typical enterprise data that we see on many of our projects. So I was wondering, uh, you know, like as a senior tech leader responsible for building this, you know, system platform architecture, do you, do you feel a bit worried, you know, that will our our system scale? Maybe especially because we are building likely systems, uh, which we, cannot test today we don't really know how much data will come we have an idea but we may not today be able to you know simulate that much data so how do you how do you architect for systems of this scale where you know a the data is so much possibly and b you also cannot currently simulate that much amount of data
1: Okay, so this is an interesting question. Uh, In TMT, we do expect a huge amount of data. Uh, This data is going to be telemetry data. Usually, people associate uh, images with telescopes. That is also there, but the huge, large data is telemetry data, machine generated data that we require for diagnostics and problem solving mainly. Um, uh, The the first challenge of scaling is estimating how much. what is the size of the data? What kind of storage is required? Um, for estimation, we heavily rely on the domain experts. So the, uh, the person that we talk to on TMT side, the architect, he's in the telescope for more than three decades. And he has seen that uh, of uh, uh, he's worked with a telescope where the primary mirror size is 10 uh, meters, And then he can extrapolate and uh, basically calculate how much data uh, can be generated by the modern architecture that we are building uh, and uh, under different headings. And he has shared uh, that Excel with us that uh, we can look at. So that gives us estimate of the size. Uh, The second challenge is how do you create some test data? right? Because I mean, this is the telescope is not even operational. Um, so we have some idea of the structure of some of the formats. Each equipment will give us some different details, but we have some idea of the format. Using that, we create fake data, uh, right? And we we uh, basically populate uh, our files and our partitions, basically using some fake data based on the structure that that whatever we know about as of now. And then finally, uh, how do we know? That is the main question. That this is going to scale uh, when when it actually happens. So scaling has multiple aspects. First is uh, will the storage scale? Will the the way you are trying to store will that scale? Uh, and that is now a pretty standard question. I mean, if we uh, are looking at like a, a terabyte data per night, then we we know that even for six months we will need like two hundred terabytes of data to store. And uh, logically, then relational format doesn't make a lot of sense because very soon, we will run out of disk uh, space of one machine and we may have to split it across multiple machines. Okay. And if that is the, uh, the, the way we want to scale, then there are standard answers to that. That yes, uh, if you use um, uh, HDFS-based or object store-based uh, stores, they scale horizontally. Uh, by, by partitioning your data uh, onto different machines. Uh, and then there are they, they are also basically fail-safe by they replicated every partition once or twice. So for our project, we are thinking of st- that kind of a storage scalability. And then finally, if we go with that kind of storage, then uh, what about your queries? Will they scale? Will they give you an answer quick enough? Because relational queries can run very fast. Uh, there is a lot of uh, understanding about how to optimize those queries. So now we have to ask the same question on this new storage. And uh, that is the exercise we can do right now. Uh, we can ask what are the possible use cases for which this data will be used. And as I said, the primary use case is diagnostic. That uh, night before uh, observation went and it did not come out all right. I mean, there is some problem there. So someone want to go and collect the events from generated from all the sensors in the telescope for that one hour, for that two hour period. So then suddenly you know that for this particular use case, even though you have terabytes of data, you are going to subset it within within those two hour, within that two hour window. And this horizontal horizontally scalable storage allows you a very simple way of uh, basically navigating to uh, uh, that subset. Uh, by uh, So essentially your filtering criteria, first filtering criteria is basically just navigate to uh, appropriate file in the, in the file structure or in the HDFS. That's very quick. And then within that two hour window, if you have like 10, 20 GB of data, then you basically ask uh, uh, your query and show today uh, by generating a fake 10 GB data on your laptop, that that kind of a query can return you a result in five seconds or ten seconds. And if that is acceptable, then you can extrapolate and say that even when you go to a scale of terabytes, and if your use case is still the same, then your query will still run in five seconds. And of course, we will discover new use cases and we'll have to work around that. But that is the I think there is no magic in a sense, right? I mean uh, the the people are dealing with the large data issues all the time and uh, i guess this is this is the way we look at the problem of scalability
0: right right makes sense Uh, are you also using by any chance uh, any streaming you know programming here like for instance you know you're getting a stream of events and then you like slice them you filter and then you work with like a set are there some streaming paradigms that you are using here or not needed because Uh,
1: yes uh, the streaming is very much there first of all the data is generated in the streaming fashion so all the event, uh, right? They they are. So there is a somewhere there is a pub sub going on, and someone is listening to all the topics, right, in this pub sub mechanism, and then as the events are coming in that subscription, someone is writing continuously to the disk. So that is that is the the writing of this data is definitely in the streaming fashion. As far as the query is concerned. Uh, the streaming is applied in a very uh, different way for big data. Uh, if your query is continuous, for example, if you fire a query and it gives you a result which keeps updating every second, then that is called as a streaming uh, a query or streaming basically a uh, paradigm. But yeah. if your query terminates, for example, if you ask uh, a query across a terabyte, but... If it gives you a result in five seconds and says that this is your result, then that is still considered a batch, right? So so in that sense, our main query that I talked about is going to be batch. But streaming will play some role beyond that. So uh, assume that we have a new use case for which this kind of a storage and this kind of a representation of data uh, for those new queries is not suitable. And we need to create different represent which is different views in database terminology that we need to create a different view for which uh, uh, this this uh, uh, which will be more suitable for this new query
0: you needed like real time feedback to be pumped back into the telescope to say i am getting this let's say information in the packet and using that right. using the telescope right. you know corrects itself or adds some you know add something then that could be possibly a use case of continuous stream filtering yes that is
1: that is right but that loop that feedback loop will not go via the big data uh, storage that we have that feedback loop will be within the control system that we are building so it won't uh, uh, it will be then a a real near real time near real time uh, a scenario but without the scale of the data right it will be like uh, we'll be dealing with the data of last few seconds right and then it won't be the challenge will be slightly different so i hope that that answers your question yeah yeah
0: no i think the way i kind of see this is what what i think has happened or what you're trying to achieve here is you're sort of saying let's break down the scalability slash large data problem into smaller parts and once you break them down into these smaller parts they are now much more manageable much more predictable and then we can use use that breakdown uh, as a way of uh, of you know uh, managing the problem and solving the problem individually in in slightly smaller chunks than the you know huge humongous chunk that we were talking about
1: yep exactly
0: yeah yeah that's uh, yeah i think that that sort of Makes it, uh, it's like, how do you eat an elephant, you know, bite by bite. <laughs> <laughs> right. Forward. right. Cool. And I think that the, the other thing is around general, I guess, loose coupling in the architecture, right? Which is mm-hmm. about ensuring that you are potentially building your architecture in a manner that certain components can be swapped out as the context of the problem changes. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, that is, that is also, that is also true um we i mean the usual usual i think the 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 loose coupling uh, is a is a very nice principle applied right from each how you design classes to how do you design your services to how do you design your uh, uh, uh subsystems in uh, you know you know in you know architecture and i think yeah that helps so that is definitely one of the principles.
0: So today, uh, nowadays, if you look at some of the enterprise architectures, uh, you know, which are producing a lot of data, what they do to get some sort of loose coupling is that they use like, you know, a stream of events and then, you know, a, a, a product like Kafka to basically put stuff into Kafka and say that now all other systems in a way are connected to Kafka. So it allows for like this decomposition of the architecture right and i was curious if this is something that you know uh, logically is something that you have also looking at or implementing or thinking around these lines
1: yes we are uh, so uh, kafka doesn't figure in our architecture so far uh, but uh, we uh, as i said uh, there was another requirement for having a very low latency communication between subsystems right uh, and we adopted redis for that so the Challenge that was not scale. Kafka also gives you scale, not only streaming but streaming at scale. Uh, here the challenge was that we don't want to persist these events; these are transient events, but we want to communicate extremely efficiently with the latency around two to three milliseconds. And uh, of course, Kafka is not optimized for that uh, kind of latencies. So, and this this latency end-to-end, right, from publisher to the to the subscriber. So we adopted uh, uh, Redis for that, and Redis, like Kafka, uh, Redis has a protocol which is like a decoupled. Any language, any subsystem can uh, u- using different libraries can publish and subscribe, uh, and uh, that is that is a nice principle. Uh, in case of uh, our our uh, uh, this lake house that we are building, um, we uh, we could have considered Kafka for some use cases. And those use cases are like, imagine that you, you stored your data in certain tables. Uh, let's let's call them tables in your uh, this, like house. Uh, and you come up with a new requirement for queries which are uh, running very inefficiently on, on your current structure. So the logical solution will be to create new views. You, you have to project this data in, in a way that are like queries become very simple to execute. So how will you do that? Well, this data is continuously growing uh, so you have a, a requirement for building a view which is like up to date, right? You 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 have another table which is with each event in the original table, your view gets updated. That is architecture, and then people use Kafka uh, uh, for doing that, where where they they share the events, uh, the the let's call them the CRUD events on the on the data on that queue, and then listen to that and then update uh, update uh, their views. Uh, what we are planning to do because we chose a particular uh, implementation which is delta lake, delta lake tables have this reactivity inbuilt. you can listen like just like Kafka topic you can listen right. to a delta table. Mm-hmm. it will not have the same latency. so uh, imagine that latency of Kafka itself is not comparable to Redis right uh, But if you now consider this reactivity of a table in delta lake, the latency is even worse right? Uh, It could be, it could run into like many seconds, right? Uh, But we don't care because for that use case, having my view updated even after one hour is not a bad idea, right? Uh, Is not a bad idea. So, so yes, I mean, that loose coupling is a, is a good idea. And Kafka is a very central place for that, but somehow for both the, the low latency events, as well as the big data, we, we, we could get away without uh, using Kafka. And one of the objectives was to minimize the the architecture pieces if we can. And then that's why we stayed away from that. But it's a, it's a very cool product. Uh,
0: and are you using, are you like going to deploy all of this on some cloud uh, like AWS or GCP or others? And are you like leveraging the cloud in some manner or is this going to go in their own private data centers?
1: Uh, no, this will be primarily within the. Uh, it will be on-premise de- deployment of everything because you can imagine that the software that we are building, including the data capture and the initial data, has to reside within the summit. Summit is that huge, a uh, uh, place within. Uh, 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 so so let's say that on the hilltop there is a telescope. And uh, on the base of the hill, there is a huge room uh, or a couple of rooms where all these machines will be hosted for better data connectivity and more reliability and and all that. Uh, But we do have a requirement that once the data becomes stale, uh, like it's more than six months, then maybe the chances of that being queried reduces a lot. So we can move that data to the cloud for archival purpose and for the cost purpose. Because we know that clouds uh, storage, like S3, are very cheap uh, for long-term usages, especially if you're not uh, pulling it out again and again. So we plan to move our data eventually to the cloud service like S3 for archival purpose. But for the data which we want to query, we will keep uh, in the summit. Uh, so all the s- machines for software deployment services uh, and the data primary data will reside within within the premise
0: yeah that 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 sounds quite good um, if uh, if i if i remember correctly you mentioned that this is an open source project is that correct is your code open source it is. the one that you are writing it that's, is open source that's, that's amazing so maybe i'll link link to the repositories to the github repos
1: i guess uh, yes yes there, there i'll i'll share all the all the links with you you can you can share it
0: Great. Oh, this, this, is, this is very helpful. Uh, this is very helpful. Um, I think uh, we are like coming to the close of our show. Maybe I have one one last uh, question for today. Um, you mentioned earlier, right at the start of this, that you know Twitter is one of your go-to social media tools. Can you like? Do you follow specific people on Twitter? Do you follow specific topics on Twitter? Like, like, how, how, what's your Twitter usage style? <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, so so these days uh, it has changed a little. It's like fifty percent technology, fifty percent politics. <laughs> but <laughs> when I started, my my purpose, uh, the, I, I will I will just share how I reached to Twitter. Um, so you can you can always read about uh, technology, right? I mean, you you find a great article about React, and you can read that. Uh, but what 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 makes me Uh, connect better with the article is if I know the author, if I know something about the author already and, and, uh, and uh, know the credentials and know what that author has, what context he comes from. And I think Twitter provides me that. So, so for example, if I'm, I want to learn react, I follow the community and I follow all the important people in the, for example, in UI community these days, i am following a snowpack ecosystem or or let's say that modern web ecosystem that's the keyword so i have carefully found out all the tools all the and their handles all their authors and their handles and interesting people who have some opinions about es modules and modern web and all that and i am following that following them on twitter and when they say something when they share an article either their own or someone else's i i connect I have the incentive to read that uh, just because some article is great and, and it comes to me via channel which I don't recognize. I mean, I, I will find it hard because my time is limited. What Even to know whether article is useful or not, I have to go through it and, 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 and decide whether to finish. Right. Uh, and what Twitter helps me do that is have this ecosystem. It's like a people that you know at least one-sided. <laughs> this is this is knowing knowing just one side. I know them, how good they are, what they think, why they think like that, what are what are their views, and then from that circle, when they recommend something, just a line, either a line of wisdom, or if they share an article, or if they endorse a style of or they crib about some pattern or some library, then that is my. That, that I take that seriously. I go and evaluate what they're saying, uh, what their article is saying, what that library is about. And that is my that is why I rely on Twitter because Twitter is about people. I almost embedding myself, I'm surrounding myself with like all these wizards, basically, who are great in that field. And they are talking to me, at least one-sided, right? I mean, I'm not able to talk to them. I mean, well, if if I wish I can, but that is, that is a lot more effort. But they are speaking to me, and uh, that means a lot. That was not possible uh, earlier before the Twitter and before all the social media thing. But I think that gives me the connect. And I feel that that is very important for, for all the learning domains and, of course, politics, which I follow a lot these days. That you first identify people and what they think and how they think, what is their take, and then then you follow them for a while, and maybe then your test changes. For example, you say that okay, enough of, about this modern web. Now you want to learn about the 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 big data technology or or uh, about cloud or about IoT, and then you follow some people around that, and that network keeps expanding. It's up to you how far you want to go because it's one people will refer to the other person and then they will refer to the other people and other tools and and you know how twitter works so very soon you will be in the thick of things and uh, you 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 will feel connected with all that knowledge much better than 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 uh, in comparison to it coming from uh, 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 somewhere else so so that is my take on why i use twitter and how i use it
0: That's very interesting. And yeah, in a way, what you're saying is you sort of follow people that you respect, follow maybe, you know, projects that you respect. And then the material that sort of comes from them, it kind of already is like pre-approved or pre-thought through in, in a way. And that way you are kind of ensuring you are getting mostly high quality content and spending time more effectively.
1: Right, right. That's right.
0: Great. So people, if, if someone and, you know, our listeners want to reach out to you, Mushtaq, what's, what's the best way to reach out to you? Is Twitter the place to interact with you?
1: Uh, sure. My Twitter handle, I can share Mushtaq A is my Twitter handle. Great. I'll uh, add these to the show notes. Sure. Sure. That is, that is fine.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Mushtaq. This has been wonderful speaking to you for you spending your time on a weekend, uh, you know, recording this and it's been an inspiring chat and i'm hope we can do another one soon
1: sure i think it was a pleasure it was it is good to talk about things i like and it's good to talk to you gurpreet <laughs> so so Great it was fun. a joy yeah looking forward to talking again
0: thank you take care
1: thank you bye bye you were
0: listening to expertise we hope you enjoyed the conversation Please do share your feedback and likes with us and recommendations for future topics. We would love to hear from you.